I invite you to open your Bible tonight and turn to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to uh, the Romans, looking at chapter 10. If you remember uh, the letter to the Romans, uh, Paul, it's, it takes the first eight chapters uh, to lay the, out just the, the, the glory of the gospel, uh, how God justifies freely as a gift that he gives. Uh, Romans 3 and 4, 5 were critical to Martin Luther's uh, coming to a proper understanding of how are we made right with God. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church taught that uh, justification was God making us morally better by uh, giving us grace and the sacraments of the church and, and the Holy Spirit, and you could appeal to the saints, and, and they would help. And, uh, and then purgatory to sort of wrap things up. And I, um, that, that's about a shabby and brief a, a description of Roman Catholic theology you'll get uh, from me. But you can go study it yourself. That's what Luther was up against. Uh, and then he discovers that justification is this incredible free gift where God justifies not the godly who've, who've managed to make their way through and, and uh, through the, the means of, of, of the sacraments and other things able to, to finally uh, get themselves into a perfect state. He doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. And that's where Luther found his hope, uh, as a free gift in Jesus Christ. And, and, but we're not going to talk about justification tonight. And uh, we're going to talk about um, how did God, uh, what was the instrument God used to spread that message? And we're going to see that God used the power of preaching. We're going to look at Romans chapter 10. Paul has finished his first eight chapters with the glory of the gospel. Then in chapters 9 and 10, he's, he's wrestling with why didn't, the, why didn't Israel come to faith? Why, how come so many Israelites have rejected the message? Has God's promise failed? And he says, no, it has not failed. But they did not combine, they did not hear with understanding and faith. But now he's back in chapter 10 about, uh, so how are people saved? Well, then we'll, we're going to see that here tonight. Verse 5. Oh, let me start, let's just start at verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Israel didn't submit to the righteousness that comes as a free gift. Instead, tried to establish their own. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is bring Christ, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And then our text. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh God in heaven, we submit ourselves tonight to your beautiful gospel word. We thank you, God, that in um, your wisdom you have um, called for the foolishness of preaching, preaching of the gospel, to be the means whereby you, you gather your elect and build up your church. So Lord, do that work even here tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As you know, 500 years ago, October 31, a man named Martin Luther, a very good monk, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, um, he says if there was ever a a man who could achieve a salvation through monkery, it would have been been I, Martin Luther. Uh, He was a, um, strived very hard to be a good monk, to keep all the rules uh, so that he could be made right with God. But but he was seeing things in in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he had taken a pilgrimage to Rome, and what he'd seen there had deeply distressed him because he did not see the leaders, uh, the bishops, the archbishops, the cardinals, etc., manifesting godliness and grace. He saw greed and power and perversion, and um, he was deeply distressed. And Now, there were others who had all also were calling on the church to reform its morals. There had been uh, calls for moral reform. But Luther, by the Holy Spirit, had the, understand, the, the ability to understand that the, the moral plague that was affecting the Roman Catholic Church uh, had a deeper root The Word of God was not um, functioning as the sole authority of the church so that the church was was not submitting to the authority of the Word of God and the gospel of that Word had been almost completely lost. And so Luther's call, his, his reform was a, was a call to the word and to the gospel, to the doctrine of the Apostle Paul, the doctrine of, of Scripture, particularly as it pertains uh, to the gospel. It is a sort of a back-to-the-Bible movement. Now, in the past, we've celebrated um, this Reformation by looking at key doctrines. Well, tonight, I want to uh, look at uh, the... the the means that God used to, to make the Reformation happen. Uh, we, uh, Joanna and I, just had the opportunity to be uh, uh, sabbatical, and we were able to do a little traveling um, through. Um, we were in England most of the time, but we were also down in, in, in France a bit, and there are churches everywhere. Um, you get a sense that these are old, old churches um, many of them uh, formerly in England were, were formerly Roman Catholic uh, until the Reform- Reformation in England, and then they became Anglican. But in France, the old churches were Catholic then, and they're Catholic still. Um, you just get a sense of the pervasiveness of the Roman Catholic Church. It was the only game in town. There were a few, few uh, people like the Waldensians trying to, um, to, to break away and... and um, and reclaim the truth of the scripture as they saw, but they were uh, intensely persecuted, massacred. Uh, it, was, it was simply the fact that the church was the Roman Catholic Church. 
It's all there was. And, and to be, you were taught from your youth that to be outside of the church was to be outside of grace, that you could not be saved outside of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and so you have this uh, in, incredible blanket of Roman Catholic faith and practice, which is, again, not founded on the Word of God. Um, and, and that's just where people lived. And the miracle is how in the world, you, how was that broken? When 99.99% of the people simply accepted that's, what, that's how it was, that's what it was, and even when Luther began, he wasn't looking to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, he was secretly simply to reform it, but, but how did the Reformation actually come about? Well, there's, there's all sorts of different things that God used, and you can do that study. Tonight, I want to uh, um, posit what I'm, I think is absolutely true that the Reformation happened through a revival of gospel preaching. The the Reformation was a movement of the Spirit of God uh, where the Spirit worked powerfully through the uh, expository preaching of Scripture. Uh, Stephen Lawson, I don't know, maybe some of you were at the Ligonier Conference this past year, uh, 2017 Ligonier Conference. He talked about the Reformation and the revival of preaching. He says this. He says, the Reformers were many things, they were master commentators. They were prolific authors. They were churchmen. They were precise exegetes and profound letter writers. They were many things as they shaped the times in which they lived. But the number one ministry of the reformers was the preaching of the word of God. If you had reduced them to one ministry, if they had had to let everything else go and they could only do one thing, this was the one thing. They would have taken the pulpit. Lawson says it was by the pulpit and by the preaching of the word of God that they ignited the Reformation. And that should not surprise us because that's exactly what we find throughout Scripture. That God's primary means of making the gospel known is through preaching. That's Paul's conviction we find here in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, I just encourage you to sort of follow along with me. We're looking at verse 14. And Paul asks uh, the, the, these series of questions. He, he's just laid out in verses um, 8 and following the wonder of the gospel, how free it is. This is what he's been saying in the first eight chapters, it, that it, it is not about gaining righteousness by doing certain things. The righteousness of the gospel is a righteousness that comes as a free gift to those who call on the name of the Lord. It's all that's required. We saw that this morning, the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't do a single thing for God. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so these are just tremendous verses. With the heart one believes and and is justified. How simple is that? You believe and you're justified. God pronouncing the sentence of innocence. With a, with a mouth one confesses and is saved. And there's no distinction, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. Um, the Lord bestows his riches, his gospel riches, to all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is really good news. Uh, if, you, if you have any sense of Uh, how unlikely it is that you should be saved. This is really good news. Everyone, that means there's room for you. There's room for me. If we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. 
So Paul is just delighting in God's grace and gospel goodness that's being broadcast to this lost world. And maybe you're here tonight and you just needed to hear that. Uh, that, that you, um, maybe you just, the Holy Spirit's convicted you. You know that you've sinned against God. You know that if you were to die tonight, you are not ready to meet your maker. Friend, this is a gospel for you. He bestows his riches to all who call on him. There are, your sin is no obstacle to your everlasting salvation. That's incredible. Because it ought to be an, an impenetrable obstacle given the holiness of God and the wretchedness of sin. And yet God has blown that obstacle aside in the cross of Jesus Christ. So God freely forgives and he freely pardons and he freely gives his riches to everyone who calls on him. If we understood these things, you see, if, 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 we, um, if we had the Holy Spirit's help to, to truly grasp the riches of God freely given, we would call. Oh, God, help us to call on the name of the Lord. But Paul raises a problem. <clears throat> How can people call on the name of the Lord if they do not believe in him? Salvation comes by faith. It's a free gift. But that faith involves knowledge. You need to know things about Jesus. You need to know that he is the Lord. So Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. He says, men of Israel, you need to know this. You need to be certain of this. That this one that you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And the men were convicted, cut to the heart, and they asked the great question, what must we do to be saved? See, you have to know these things. You have to hear the, the, the gospel message. You need to know things about Christ. You need to understand who he is. You need to know why he came. You need to know what he accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. But Paul asks, how will they gain that knowledge? You don't get that knowledge by taking a walk in the park. General revelation doesn't tell us these things. This, the, these truths are not found anywhere else except in the word of God. So Paul says, how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? You see, Paul sets before us these two towering realities. On the one hand, the glory of God's gospel work in Jesus Christ, where God sends his only son into this lost, fallen, condemned world. And God in Christ creates a gospel salvation that's full and free for every sinner, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It is a magnificent, glorious truth. And then on the other hand, Paul points us to a lost world that, that, that needs to be saved. There's no one who does good, not even one. By nature, objects of the wrath of God... Born in sin, under the curse that, that, that came through Adam, and then, and then we, we, uh, we add to our condemnation through our own wicked thoughts and words and deeds. People need to be saved, and, and they can be saved. The gospel promises they can be saved if they will but call on the name of the Lord. But how? You see, this is the other thing to face. How can they call on the one who they have not heard? How can they believe in him if they, if they haven't heard? People die. People go to hell because they, they didn't hear. Lack of knowledge. 
And so because they never hear of the name of the Lord, they don't call on his name and, and, and so be saved in him. I, I think we should be struck by just the, the tragedy of this. Imagine if, you, if you, you went and visited a friend and they were, they were sick with, a, with an infection and, and you didn't maybe know much about medicine, but you could tell that, that whatever it was, it was killing them. They looked awful. They, they seemed to be, to be on their way to death. And, and you said, well, we need to get you to the hospital. The hospital is just around the corner, and, and, and I'm, I'm certain that they have, they have medicine. Maybe you did a little research, and, and you found what the medicine was. You, you were able to diagnose the disease, and, and all they needed to do was get to the, to, to the hospital. But you see, what if, what if they didn't know there was a hospital? What if it was right around the corner, and your friend died never knowing there was a hospital right around the corner, and it had the cure? You would say, what, is, what an unspeakable tragedy. You see, we live with people every day who have an incurable disease uh, by any human methods. They are sick with sin, and it will kill them eternally. And the cure is, is near. Paul says it's not far away. You don't, have to, you don't have to go on a pilgrimage. You don't have to ascend to heaven to go get it. It's, it's near to you in the word that's proclaimed. But, but, you, but you see, people need to be told. And that, this is what drives the Apostle Paul to plant churches. People, people are dying without Christ and without hope in the world. And, and it is precisely because Christ has come into the world as the cure for death. And the fact that all people need to do is to call on him, but they need to hear about him if they're going to call on him. And so Paul says, I must go and I must plant churches and I'm going to put pastors in those churches and I'm going to tell those pastors, like young Timothy, Timothy, preach the word tell them about Jesus see how can they call on him if they not believed and, and then he asked the other question how will they hear without someone preaching how will they hear without someone preaching to them see Paul's convinced that God's ordained means of gathering his elect is uh, through the proclamation the preaching of the gospel this has always been God's method. God's uh, point of contact with his creation has always been his word. It's how he created this universe, right? He spoke by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and, and by the breath of his mouth, the host. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. I read a great book on a sabbatical by Christopher Ash about uh, just uh, preaching, and, and he, he takes a look at Deuteronomy, and he says, Deuteronomy, um, <clears throat> you see here that uh, God's way of gathering and building up his church is, is through what, a, prof, a, a king? No, there was no king. It was through a prophet, it was through Moses, a preacher. And what Moses did is he communicated to God's people God's word. And that formed them. That created them. And by that word, they were led out of the bondage of Egypt. And, and he says, so at the end of Deuteronomy, as Moses is facing his death, Deuteronomy is this long sermon. In a sense, um, the question that's asked is, how is the authority of God going to be exercised in the body, the people of God, when Moses 
the prophet is gone. And the answer is, well, God's going to send other prophets. And they're going to take the word that's been given to Moses, and they're going to, they're going to teach it, and they're going to preach it. And, and so God, God is going to continue to exercise his authority through prophets. Ash says this, the authority of God is exercised not by the written word, but by the written word preached. This is why the test of obedience to God was whether or not they listened to the prophet. To be stiff-necked is not to give ear to the prophets. So he says, neither the written word alone nor the prophet alone is sufficient, but rather the written word preached. God did not just give them the book. He gave them preachers of the book so that face to face they could be taught, challenged, rebuked, and exhorted to repentance and faith. That's what preachers do. Just take this, and then face to face, just simply as ambassadors, to say, do you believe this? Is this the authority for your life? Is this what you strive to believe, and is this what you strive to do? This is who God is. This is what salvation means. This is this is what God promises. This is our hope. This is our rock. This, this is what preachers do. And, and that's all in the Old Testament. That's, that's what happens. And, and when God wants to judge Israel, he stops sending prophets. And they're just left to themselves. How will they hear, Paul says, without someone preaching? Because you see, when Jesus came, he came preaching. And when, when he said to his disciples, I'm sending you, he didn't send them to publish Bibles. He sent them to preach the Bible. Now, praise God for, pub, for, for Bible publishing. But God's means, you see, God's means, his primary means has always been the word of God, the written word proclaimed, the written word preached. Why is that? Well, because Jesus himself speaks through the proclamation of the word. Notice what Paul says. He says, how will they hear him whom they've never heard? Uh, whom they never, excuse me, how will they hear him of whom they never heard? Uh, believe him. I got the wrong verse here. I'm right here. Everyone who believes. How will they, they call on him, and how are they to believe in him, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Um, he's, he's, Paul is saying that, that for people to hear, there's two ways of hearing, correct? I mean, you can hear what I'm saying tonight. You can hear the words that come out of my mouth, and that's it. And you're looking at your watch, and you're thinking, okay, when is this going to be done? You're just hearing sounds. But there's a hearing that, um, that is actually hearing Christ himself speak. How will they believe him whom they have not heard? Not simply of whom they have not heard, but how can they believe him whom they have not heard? You see, in other words, Jesus Christ himself is speaking in the proclamation of the gospel. Calvin says this, from among the many excellent gifts with which God has adorned the human race, it is a singular privilege that he deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may resound in them. His voice. One of the early 
Reformed confessions. You have the first Helvetic confession, 1535, probably right in there somewhere. 1566, you have the second Helvetic confession, a Bullinger of the, of the Swiss Reformation, Switzerland. Um, the second Helvetic confession says this, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. That, that's a bold statement. What they mean is, you see, is that God actually is speaking through the proclamation of his word. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He's, he's, he's writing to the Thessalonians. He's saying, we thank God constantly that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Well, how did they hear it from Paul? Well, Paul was preaching. And he says to them, when you heard that, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There's a lot of talk today. Does God still speak? And there are books and, and, and things out there, seminars, where you can go and, and learn how to hear right, God speak messages to you. And, and, and Reformed Christians are accused of, of, so we have sort of a silent God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Reformed churches believe that God still speaks. God talks to his people. He does. We believe, Danny Hyde writes, that via preaching, God's voice is as real and vital to us as it was through the mouths and pens of the prophets and apostles as we proclaim this, the word of God. Woodhouse says to hear the word of God is to encounter God as fully and as really as is possible for a human being. You see, when, when Christ is proclaimed, when the word of God is preached as, as, it, as it should be preached, just according to its truth, according to the text, we believe that Jesus, this is, this is inspired by the spirit of Christ, and this points to Jesus Christ, and, and Christ himself then is speaking to us here, and as that message is proclaimed, Jesus Christ is addressing his people, and Jesus Christ is gathering the elect. It is, it is the word proclaimed that Jesus uses to regenerate a human heart. Now, he, he can do it without proclamation. People can just read the Bible and be converted. But the general way God converts people is as the Bible is explained to them, as it is preached, and they, and they hear the, the, the call, uh, confess your sin, repent and believe and be saved. Notice what Paul says, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Why do some people, when they hear the message of the gospel, come to faith and other people don't come to faith? Everybody heard the words. Well, Paul says that the word itself, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So that, that as the word is proclaimed, Christ speaks and he speaks specifically to his elect. And so Paul preaches on a riverbank in, in Philippi and, and a lady there named Lydia we're told the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Other people were there listening to him, and it was kind of mildly interesting. Uh, maybe some new ideas they hadn't thought about before. Uh, but Lydia heard a voice. God opened her heart to pay attention, and she heard a gospel and realized that it was a gospel for her. And she confessed and repented and believed, and Lydia was saved, and a, and a church was planted there. 
This happens over and over and over. If you ever talk to Rick Phillips, um, he's preached here numerous times about how he was converted. He, he was an unbelieving man, but um, had his life basically together, but, but um, thought he probably should add a little religion to sort of round out the, the full man that he was. And so he goes to, um, ends up, he was in Philadelphia, and he, and he sees the 10th press and, uh, and walks in and sits down, and James Boyce preaches a gospel sermon, and Phillips is, is convicted and converted, he says, on the spot. Because he heard the voice of God as the word was opened. It's not men, it's God. If you, if you remember, um, there's a wonderful video, I, th- I hope it's still up, on Christianity Explored website about a, a lady called Deb who, who um, was as lost as lost could be, strung out on heroin and just a lost, uh, lost lady. And it was, it was Good Friday, I believe, and she, she just sensed she needed to go to church. And she goes to a church and the gospel is read about Jesus who was hung between two criminals and, and died for sinners. And she said, I just began to weep and weep and weep because I knew, I just knew that Jesus did that for me. And she was converted. She really didn't even know what had happened. She just knew that that. that God had spoken a message to her as, as the word of God was proclaimed. I, I remember um, I was preaching in the Czech Republic. This was maybe almost 10 years ago now. I had the opportunity there to do a, a camp with Hans Deutschmann. And uh, I, was just, I was preaching the story of the prodigal son. And there was a lady sitting in the, car, in the, in the audience there, a small group. And she's maybe, maybe six years old. And the word, the God just used that word about the prodigal son. And, and she said, I, I just realized that I was the prodigal. Had been in the church when she was a child and had lived her, her whole life just going her way and doing her thing. And when she heard that about the prodigal and about what had happened to him and about how he was willing to go home and, and how joyfully the father received him, this woman said, I'm going to do what he did. And, and she came home. For some people, it's instantaneous. For other people, it's just a slow process where, where slowly God is, is making the lights go on and, and bringing conviction of sin and truth is, is starting to make sense. But God uses the preaching of the gospel as a primary means of grace. Murray Kappel, I read a book called The Heart of the Target. It's a great book. He says this. He says, through the long history of the church, nothing has won as many souls, changed as many lives, built up as many saints, and strengthened as many churches as the faithful preaching of God's word. His word is powerful. And when it is proclaimed clearly and its message is applied pertinently to those who listen, it has massive spirit-laden potential to change lives, either suddenly and dramatically or quietly and incrementally. I think that's absolutely true. Lawson says this, down through the centuries, every time there's been a new era in church history, it has been when God has raised up preachers of the word of God. You can go century by century, epoch by epoch, era by era, and those mountain peak times, the Reformation, the Puritan Age, the Great Awakening, it has always been launched by God unleashing a new generation of red-hot Bible preachers. There is no exception. There's never a revival in the church that doesn't have preaching at its very core. What a compelling reason to invite people to church. Right? We don't invite them to come for the singing or the fellowship. We certainly don't invite them for the coffee. <laughs> but we can invite people to come and hear Jesus. 
God speak. You want to freak people out? Say, every Sunday I go to a place where God talks to me. Every week, he talks to me, reminds me of who he is, speaks his promises to me, calls me to confess my sin, assures me that I'm forgiven, reminds me of my future with him. Every week, God speaks to me. Wouldn't you like to come and hear God speak to you? This is how people come to believe so they can call on the name of the Lord and, and then be saved. And where else in all the world will people hear that? Where in, what television channel will you turn to? Seriously. Where you will hear the gospels faithfully expounded. What other, what other outlet is there in, the, in all the world where the, the voice of Jesus Christ is going out and people, people are hearing and being saved? Isn't this, if you look back in your own life, isn't this how, what God has used primarily in your life? Hasn't it, hasn't it been, I mean, you've read good books, you've been to seminars, you've been in Bible studies, and they've all been a blessing to you, but, but haven't you felt your heart strangely stirred when, when Jesus Christ is proclaimed? And you, and you sense that God was talking to you and, you, and there was a deep conviction or there was a deep assurance and a peace and a joy, a, a new insight as Christ uh, talked to you in his word, through his word? Now, now, I know that all preaching isn't like that. I know, I know that sometimes men get confused and they don't understand the power of this word. And so they try to, to do things that are interesting or novel, some, trying somehow to, to, to gather your interest. I know that happens. And, and sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we don't, we don't really understand the text. And it gets garbled. And the, and the voice of Christ comes through maybe very faintly. But... but but friends, then just pray for pastors and pray for preachers. Because when this word is, is, is proclaimed, you see, then Christ speaks loudly and clearly. And with regenerating activity so that people wake up and there's hearing and believing and calling and sinners are saved. That's what happened in the Reformation. You see, preaching had almost disappeared altogether. Uh, the, if, you, if you walked into, into Roman Catholic Church, it's still true today, what you see front and center is what? It's the altar. Where they believe that Christ is, is sacrificed over and over and over and over again. That's, that's the center. And the pulpit, if there's a pulpit, it's always off to the side. Well, well reformers said, no, the, we believe that the sacrifice is done once for all. Never to be repeated. That's accomplished. We just need to proclaim it. And so the pulpit comes back to the middle of, of, of the room. Uh, when Martin Luther, uh, not Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he started his ministry, uh, he, he, he goes to a church where um, they were trying anything to get people in, and they would often have little skits and dramas up on the stage. And so when he got there, he took the pulpit, and he literally nailed it to the floor in the middle of the stage. And said, this church is going to stand or fall on the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. And God blessed that tremendously. The pulpit, Luther said, is the throne for the word of God. And from that throne, Jesus Christ speaks. Jesus Christ exercises his authority and his saving power. Let me wrap this up with some application. I just want you, again, to know, over these past uh, couple of months, I've been doing a lot of reading about um, the, the beauty and the glory of preaching. And I, I've been very humbled by it, just humbled by the incredible privilege that's been, been given to me. 
I am, um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a dairy kid from Coopersville, really. When you're out of the pulpit for a while, you realize, I, I, I like cows way too much. <laughs> so why, and I'm a sinful man. So you just sense, why, Lord, I don't, I don't get it. But I'm so thankful. I remember I was, it was probably 1974, maybe 75, but it was right in there. Uh, Renzo DeGroat was our preacher, and uh, he was retiring. And I told you the story before. He was, he was 40 years of ministry, ordained in 1935, and he's retiring January 1, 1975. And I'm, I'm 11 years old, and I'm sitting right out there, boys and girls, right where you're sitting. And I thought, man, that is a good way to spend a life. And maybe there's a little boy sitting out there right now that, that thinks, you know what, that, that sounds like a nice way to spend a life. Being a mouthpiece for the gospel. That, that God would take these vocal cords and, 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 and allow me to, to preach the gospel. Why should I be allowed to do that? I'm very, very humbled by it. But you see, we all should be humbled. Why should you be allowed to hear and receive gospel preaching when, when there are millions and millions of people who never do? And why should God send preachers to you when you would have happily just gone your way in your sin into your eternal destruction? Why should he send people to you to preach the gospel and, and to explain who Jesus was and to call you to faith? And yet he has. And week after week you can come and, and the word of God is opened. And Christ is proclaimed. Why should you be allowed that privilege? It's very humbling. We need to pray for preachers. We need to pray for, for God to raise up preachers. And we need to pray for good preaching. It's God's primary means of saving sinners and strengthening the saints. Spurgeon said this, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God will despise the church. As we read before, Luther said, no greater mischief can happen to a Christian people than to have God's word taken from them or falsified so they no longer have it pure and clear. God grant that we and our descendants be not witnesses to such a calamity. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, the sad tragedy of American Christianity is that the preaching, uh, the preached word is being silenced, and not by government oppression, not by persecution, but because preachers, pastors have lost confidence in preaching, and congregations have lost interest in preaching. And I, a, a large part of that is because there's so much poor preaching. Stories and homilies and, 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 and illustrations and metaphors and, and a little therapeutic whatever uh, to try to encourage you through the week. And you can't live on that. But we need to hunger for, for preaching. Lawson says, if we are to have another reformation in our day, there must be a restoration of the primary, ordinary means of grace in the church today. What we have today, I'm afraid, is so little preaching. We're canceling Wednesday night services. We're canceling Sunday night services. We're shortening the time of sermons on Sunday morning. Is it any wonder that the church is becoming so weak? <clears throat> so I was studying to realize that Calvin preached twice on Sunday, 
And then every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, five days a week, every day he preached to a packed cathedral, a packed church, every day at 6 a.m. Uh-huh. <laughs> 6 o'clock. How in the world did you get people out of bed to come here preaching every day at 6 o'clock in the morning? The answer is you don't. The Holy Spirit does. And when the Holy Spirit moves, that's what happens. Isn't that what we'd love to see? That sort of zeal, I must hear Jesus, I want to see Jesus, I, I just so love, I love his word, I love his people, I love, I love hearing the voice of my Lord. That's what we need to pray. So friends, be thankful for preaching, praise God for preaching, pray for preachers, honor preaching in your home. Before your kids, let them know that you think this is a great treasure. Let them see you honor God's primary means. Invite your friends to come and hear Jesus, hear God speak to them. And then as you listen Sunday after Sunday, um, don't just sit there to, to be a consumer and to sort of you know, scale of 1 to 10, did I like it, did I not like it? Just open your ears and, and listen for the voice of Jesus every Sunday. And then apply what you hear. It doesn't matter just if it just moves you. Will it do something? Will, will you take that word? James says, blessed are those who don't just hear it, but do it. And so, and so as you leave Sunday after Sunday, be thinking, Lord, what, how could I respond to that in obedience and faith this week? In, in, in prayer, in conviction, in praise, thankfulness, in a, in a new way of obedience, whatever it might be, take the word to your heart. Jesus has spoken to you. You can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Every day you call on the name of the Lord. Every day we call out and say, Lord, help. And so do that. Apply it with faith every day. And watch what the Lord will do. Amen. <clears throat> well, Father, I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to make this message known through flawed men who point to a perfect Savior. And Father, I thank you that your spirit accompanies that word and you open ears and you regenerate hearts and you create faith and you teach little babies to call in the name of the Lord. Father, I thank you for the beauty and the glory of preaching and I pray, Lord, you would raise up young men in the church who have a hunger to preach Christ, to make him known. Lord, even from this congregation, I pray that you would raise up young men who have a passion to preach. And then, Lord, that they would be equipped and trained and students of the word, exegetes of the text, so that Christ is heard plainly and clearly and the church is, is fed and built up. And Lord, make us good hearers of the word. That we, do, that we receive it with joy and, and that we go our way and we, we cling to these truths that we've heard and we, we let them mold our life Sunday after Sunday until we stand in the presence of the speaker. May that day come soon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.